There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, we've been having a good summer, I think. It's been great. Yeah, the weather's been good. Yep. Have you been exercising it all these days? I have. You, you I look have. like it. You look like you've lost some weight. I am pretty ripped. Yeah, no, so you're looking good. You're looking good. I know you got a bit of a cold today, so I do. Uh, you're going to sound a little raspy. Like A non-COVID cold for all involved. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we are uh, pleased to have a guest join us today. We have Mark Eibel, who is the Director of Client Investment Strategies for Russell Investments. And Greg, we've done a lot of work with Russell Investments over the years. Decades. You I think bet. we've been working with Russell since 2008, maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But Mark is the Director of Client Investment Strategies. He implements model strategies into client portfolios, helps set strategic asset allocation targets. He's served a number of different roles at Russell, and we're just really pleased to have him join us because he's been on other things like this, Greg, like you might have heard of them, CNBC. Oh, yeah. Bloomberg TV. That sounds familiar. Bloomberg Radio. But now the pinnacle of anybody's career, a guest spot on the Free Lunch Podcast. So Mark, welcome to the show. You know, I've been at Russell almost 40 years and, you know, I've just been waiting for this. So now I know there's one more thing that I can check the box on before I'm all done in this business. So thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. 40 years. That's quite a run. That's a good run. Did you start when you were eight? Kind of close to that. I went to school locally. I started as an intern in the mid 80s when Russell was really going through that. What is it? The hockey stick growth phase. And they were just looking for people to do input stuff on Wang systems and that kind of fun computer systems. I just thought it would be a gig to pay the rent and have some pizza and beer. And here I am 40 years later, different roles, been a phenomenal run, been a great company. And they've allowed me to change my role a few times without having to change firms. So maybe I'll be a very rare example of someone who works at the same firm for their entire career. So it's worked out well for me and I, I uh, owe a lot to the firm. Oh, that's pretty awesome. And listen, Mark, I mean, just because you brought it up. So would you say has been the biggest change in this industry that you've, you've noticed over the last 40 years? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious one is always technology, probably on any industry that you mentioned, right? You talk about how things are computed now versus the, what you had to do back then. I think as far as the investment industry, and this really goes back, I mean, I was fortunate enough to actually work under the Russell family when they were still involved in the business. And, you know, we started as a pension fund consulting firm to the largest defined benefit plans out there. And I think the biggest change that I've seen is the solutions that were at one time really kind of available for the people that had hundreds of millions or billions of dollars or to invest are really quite similar now to what individuals can get. And that defined benefit mentality of a pension plan, now with technology, individuals can almost tailor their investments to what they want as if they are their own defined benefit plan. They have their own return goals. They have their own risks. They work with an advisor, just like pension plans work with consultants. So I think the solutions being available to individuals now looking very similar to what used to only be reserved for the biggest pools of money, largely because the technology 
technology wasn't available to do it at the individual level is I think the biggest broad change. And George Russell was on here today. I bet he'd say his vision, and he was very much a visionary and an entrepreneur would be when he was consulting to the largest pools of money, he imagined a world where every individual would kind of be able to say, I want this in it. I don't want that in it. And I think we're getting closer to that as we get closer to the end of my career. So probably those two things, just the availability of the product and just technology overall, making everything so much faster and efficient. What hasn't changed is investor behavior, right? People still love to buy high and sell low. It's hard to actually do the most basic buy low, sell high is economics 101. And yet as human beings always seems to be the hardest thing to do. And I don't think behaviorally, I think we still make some of the same mistakes we've always made. I don't think that's changed. Yeah, interesting. So listen, maybe you can just expand a little bit on your current role at Russell as Director of Client Investment Strategy. So what what does that mean on a daily basis for you? Yeah, I spend most of my time, quite frankly, doing this. I work almost exclusively with the retail side of the business. I'm in the investment division, but they're my internal clients, so to speak, in both US and Canada. And I think maybe it's because of my background and I was in US equity research for years. I started on the quantitative side. I ran research for a number of years on the US equity side. And, you know, Mark, you understand how everything's kind of done at Russell. Why don't you spend a lot of time talking about the process and going on media and talking about our market views to clients? So I started that in 2008. They basically said, wow, the world's crazy. Why don't you just travel and stay on the road and do that until we tell you not to? And it's 15 years later and I haven't been told the not to part yet. So largely now I have my fingers in various things, but a big part of my job is just trying to almost simplify, particularly for investors. It's really easy to make markets complex and just trying to simplify the message, not only of what's going on in markets, but what's going on at Russell. And I always just remind people, markets go up 75% of the time and you're probably going to live to be 80 or 90. If you keep those two things in mind, it might take away some of your anxiety about what's going on on any one quarter, one year, any even a three-year basis. Keep the bigger picture in mind, which has been a message that I've been reiterating over and over and over again. You know, it's funny from market returns, like I've been meeting with a number of clients reviewing their portfolios and everybody focuses on January of 2022 to June of 2022 as a real bad time in markets. But if you actually look back over the last 12 months, most of those portfolios have had six, seven, eight percent rates of return. So it is this behavioral tendency to focus on the negative, would you say? I would. And I get told all the time the markets are really volatile. If you actually look at the VIX right now, the volatility measure of the market, it's pretty low. Consumer sentiment, though, to your point, is low. And normally, when markets are up, consumer sentiment's up because people are happy when they're making money. And consumer sentiment's down when markets are down. So if you extend your one year to cover this COVID experience of the last three years, I mean, look what we've gone through, right? We shut down the world. And then we turned it back on again. We've had the worst inflation experience in 50 years. Russia invaded Ukraine, the worst bond market in 70 years. And yet, if you look at a balanced portfolio for the last three years, you've done just fine if you've stayed in the game. Have a plan, stay in the game. And it's been an extraordinary three years and one that we won't forget. I understand that, particularly because the health aspect making it so personal for every person. But if you look over, look at markets over 100, 150 years, and you add in all the world wars and all the geopolitical events and everything, and what do markets do? They move to that upper right-hand corner and you get these blips that are down. And when you're in them, whether they're one year or three years, you think they'll never end. And yet when you take a step back, that's why I always emphasize, you're going to live to be 80 or 90. If you want something to worry about financially, worry about not having enough 
for that long period of time. But the media is always going to be negative. Again, we've been debating this recession every single day, no matter which side of the political aisle that you tend to be on. Of course, you always think your side's right and the other side has issues and there's always anxiety about all of that. But you're right. If you take the longer term picture in mind, it is extraordinary how the market processes news very quickly once it gets the answer and moves on. And again, as individuals, we have a harder time doing that, it seems. Yeah, so true. We always try to preach the same message that you got to focus on the long run and look at what happens over a long period of time. But at the same time, you know, people, as you say, are, we're all human. We're bombarded by headlines. And I wonder if we can just talk about a few of the things that are topical right now. And one of the things you mentioned before we signed on today is just that a lot of people want to know, well, gee, is there going to be a recession? It's been talked about for a lot. And and even for myself, I've been in this business a long time, not as long as you, but long enough. And I read the analysts and the economists' reports, and half of them say that, yes, we're still headed for a recession. And it seems very logical to me, and I buy into it. And then I read the other half that say, yeah, no, we're a recession looks like it's not on the table and either soft landing or no landing. And that makes a lot of sense to me. So A, how does the average person deal with that? And B, what is Russell? What do you think the outlook is? At least where we stand, not making a prediction that we're going to hold you to. Yeah. Put it this way. If you were to invest on the first day of the last seven or eight recessions that we've had over the last 40 years or so, and you would think that's got to be the worst day in the world to invest in, right? If you actually look at your returns three and five years out, they're pretty good on a balanced portfolio and they're almost all green. And why is that? Well, you're effectively kind of buying low at that point, right? If you wait until recessions are over and invest, the market's already moved. So what does the average person do? Stay with the plan. You make tweaks with your advisor as you need to, but just avoid getting out of the game because the market is a forward-looking mechanism. As far as our views, and you're right, I think this has been the most discussed recession. And quite frankly, this might be the most, again, nuanced market to talk about because to your point, you can argue both sides. You could say the same thing about inflation. Inflation's coming down. That's great. And others will argue, yeah, but it's not coming down fast enough. You can argue every issue. And the data is just wonky. The data is weird because it's all seasonally adjusted with a period of a global pandemic. And I don't think most Fed chairs or any central bankers studied global pandemics in their uh, training to become chairs. So you've got traditional recession indicators that are out there. The yield curve has been, as they say, inverted uh, now for a little over a year. All that means is that you get paid a higher interest rate for something that matures in one to two years than you do for 10 years. And that doesn't make sense. If I'm going to take eight more years of uncertainty, you should pay me a higher coupon. Not right now, because people are more worried about the short term. You've had you know, the economies bouncing back and forth between slightly growing to not growing GDP. Some of the real traditional indicators out there saying a recession is probably out there. And if you look at the leading indicators, we still think what we might have thought is a recession at the end of this year is probably still an early 2024 event that it'll happen. The problem with predicting it is this. Two-thirds of our economy is the consumer. We will have a recession when all of us decide we're going to have a recession and we stop spending. If there's been one thing that's been consistent over the last 40 years is don't bet against the U.S. and probably don't bet against the Canadian consumer. You'll go wrong most of the time. And what gets added to this now is with all the savings that we had during COVID, we're still spending some of that, right? And there's different reports that say it's still a trillion dollars on and people have an account, some of it's 500 million, but people still have kind of savings built up. So they are still spending. Anybody that travels knows. It's like, my gosh, how can you say we're in a recession when you look at hotels? So we still think we're going to slow down a little bit. 
But quite frankly, whether you grow at a percent or contract at a percent, it kind of feels the same. Companies, I think, are running their businesses as if we're in a recession, which is why earnings seem to be holding up better every quarter than most people think they will, because they're not waiting to just have the recession and then go, oh, no, now I got to lay off a whole bunch of people. They're kind of easing into it a little bit. It's also hard to say a recession. We have, at least in the States, three and a half percent unemployment. How do you call a recession during that? But you have a tightness in the labor market. Again, some of that due to demographics, but some of that just due to issues related to COVID. So long way of saying, I don't know. We still think we'll have it early next year, but quite frankly, it's been talked about so much. I think most of it's priced into the market. And while if you flash recession on a business network, I'm sure the first reaction most people would have would be to maybe trim some of their portfolios. Also keep in mind, as inflation continues to work its way down, by the time it actually hits, central bankers are going to have much more flexibility to start thinking about when do they cut rates. And as soon as they signal that, the market would take that as a bullish signal. So again, timing changes in your portfolio based on it is so hard to do. Better to have a plan and stay in the game. If you need to raise a little bit of cash, particularly when you're getting paid more for it now, fine, but just don't make dramatic moves. This year is a great example. Markets are doing pretty well, probably better than most of us thought that they would. Craig, remember a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we had a guy named Tony from PIMCO on. Yes. And Tony talked about that we were in a growth recession. Is that kind of what you're describing? Yeah, it's almost a rotating from one sector to the other kind of a recession, which is sometimes it's called a growth recession. And I mean, even growth stocks themselves had done so well. And then value started to take the leadership last year. And then all of a sudden now we're kind of back to how I felt like when I was researching managers in the late 90s, when if you said internet or put .com at the end of your name, your stock doubled. Now you just have to mention AI and all of a sudden your stock goes up. So you kind of have that phenomenon going on in, in technology. So yeah, it's a different, again, it just because I think of the backdrop of COVID and the spending habits of people and what we've gone through and the uniqueness of that market. Parts of the economy, I think, are doing quite well. Others are maybe lagging a little bit, but we're still just kind of teetering on maybe the central banks will kind of pull this off of kind of this soft landing that everybody said was impossible. We'll see. I mean, your bank was one of the leaders in raising rates. We're all kind of doing the same thing. They're all very close to being done. And the market knows that. And whether they raise rates one time or two more times after you've done it 20 times, I mean, you're, you know, you're near the end. I think central banks are going to probably sit where they're at for a while because we really need to make sure that we've got inflation under control before we start cutting rates. So I don't think cutting interest rates is going to happen until at least 2024, maybe not even until 2025, but probably before then. One of the things you brought up is just what happened to bonds in 2022. And I think it spooked a lot of bond investors just because while we've had some relatively poor years in bonds over the last number, the kind of drawdown that we saw in 2022 was a little shocking. So what kind of advice do you give bond investors today to sort of encourage them to embrace the asset class as opposed to run, you know, run for the exits? Yeah, boy, brutal way to get to a better position. Yeah, interest rates go from zero to four to five percent. When interest rates move up, the value of the bonds that you own moves down. It's always an opposite relationship. So welcome to the worst bond market in decades because of that. And I would say this no matter what the asset class is, selling it after you've had uh, the worst experience in decades after the fact is probably not the best thing to do. But where we're at now, okay, so interest rates, you got a higher coupon while you wait, you're getting more interest payment. We're pretty close to being done. But you ask me, and I don't know, month, month to month or quarter to quarter, and that gets debated 24 hours a day in, in the media. But I bet a year or two from now, interest rates in general are probably lower than they're at rather than 
than higher. Inflation will have been much more muted. And if economies are slowing or go through recessions, the central banks will be able to cut. Well, you get the same effect in the opposite direction. You get interest rates moving down, the value of your bonds moves up. So not only now are you going to get a higher interest rate while you wait, you can get that price kicker. So hang on to your bonds is my main message. And I know that people go, well, you know, I can go to cash and get 4%. It's like, yeah, you can, but I can't buy cash cheap. Cash doesn't rally when interest rates drop. I think I'd like to be a little bit further out on the yield curve, so to speak, uh, for maturity. So yeah, cash for emergency money, absolutely enjoy the extra 4%. But racing and selling a lot of longer term assets and putting them into cash, I don't know if that's the right call. Because remember, again, going back to the behavioral aspects that we all have as humans, it's easy to get into cash. It's tough to figure out when to get back out of it. And to get back out of it, you have to feel better. Well, there's always stuff going on in the world to scare you, right? So get a good advice on when to do that or not. But I think this moving forward, as interest rates now are peaking and starting to move down, I think bondholders will be glad when they look back in a few years that they held on to their bonds. But I do sympathize, particularly for more conservative investors who are going, I didn't sign up for this. Uh, just a dramatic to the downside of fixed income market last year, but we're starting to come out the other side. What do you say to people when they say something like, yeah, but it's different this time? How do you answer that question? Yeah, I've heard that a lot over 40 years. And yet, if you look at what markets do, they just march up to the right over time. So I get it. Global pandemic makes it a little different. But still, if you look at market returns, it's not different this time, even in this circumstance. So I just look at long-term history and go, you know, markets go up 75% of the time. And sure, well, if anything, 08 is different this time, right? I mean, if you really want to talk about a market that was the system even going to function, you could talk about March of 2020 when the market dropped 35% in a month when the reality of COVID shutting down our lives hit. That is the fastest 30% drop we've had in history, including during periods of the Great Depression. You could argue those were different, and yet what did markets do after that? So sure, will it be different this time? Maybe there'll be some major event that makes it different at some point in our lives, but every other time, I'm going to bet on market history saying, we'll get through the crisis, whatever it is, and these are short-term blips in a long-term timeline of your life. They just don't feel that way during it. And, and also remember, people who say it's different this time, they probably have a book or something that that might be uh, talking about in order to say it's different this time. A lot of folks that said it was different this time at different points in history, you don't hear from them very much anymore. Why? Because they never got back in the market. And then the market matched up, marched up. So you're referencing Harry Dent right now, are you not? I mean, just an example of, I mean, there, there's lots of others. <laughs> just think about who got a lot of publicity over many years and, you know, where are they now kind of things happen sometimes. So again, markets go up 75% of the time and you're going to live to be 80 or 90. And that longevity also enables you to get through I think some of these periods, because you're going to live so long, you're going to get through whatever period that you're in right now. Is the advice different depending on age or depending on how aggressive or conservative? Sure, but that's why you work with an advisor. That's why you have a plan because that's individual to your circumstance. But I still think that what stuff people worry about on a day-to-day -day basis, what they really should worry about is, am I going to have enough money to live 20 to 30 years after I retire? And that is a planning exercise and very hard to do as an individual because we get spooked out if we have nobody to talk to other than ourselves and the TV. No, right on. On a slightly different angle, there's a lot of one in a hundred year events that have happened to us all in the last few years, the pandemic, the behavior of the bond markets. And what we're going through right now globally seems to be this heat wave, which many will argue is the result of climate change and some will argue against. But let's assume that climate change has something to do with it. And Russell Investments start, uh, launched ESG investing products a few years ago. And I'm wondering if you can just 
tell us a little bit about where ESG is now and what are the opportunities in the future? Yeah, we've been involved in this space for quite a while. And if you think about, again, I mentioned our consulting institutional heritage that we still have, but really was the foundation we started the company. A lot of uh, larger European plans were really on the forefront of this issue. And again, when it's your plan, you can make the rules and say, you know, in, let's invest in this or not in this. So it's 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 there on the institutional side, and it is starting to work its way into more individual investors. Now, we know it's harder to do that in mutual funds and et cetera, because not everybody has the same rules. But every client says, you know, I consider this or I consider that. So you have to make one set of rules for this. But we've incorporated it in our manager research process of what managers are doing in that area across that criteria. And it continues to work its way into the system. And as I'd mentioned earlier, with each person with technology almost being able to become their own defined benefit plan, I think down the road, as people have more personalized managed accounts, which is what we call it here in a product that we're launching, you'll be able to say, you know, I'm okay with this and this and exclude this and include that. And you can tailor that for the individual where you could never do that at earlier times in my career. It would always be, well, we can do that for a large defined benefit plan because they're the only client and they can tell us the rules. So we've been incorporating it over the years. I think from an investment standpoint, it's still a relatively small amount of assets. But I think we all can see, particularly as you see generational handoffs of money, the importance of it and the priority of it continues to pick up. So we're all doing our work for it. We're setting it up, getting ready operationally, and kind of waiting to see when that money really comes in. But I think technology is going to really help out in this regard because you'll be able to tailor things much more towards investors than you could in the past where it was just like, well, here's the one rule. You either like it or you don't, but we have to run this for everybody. So again, technology and, and investing, some of the things I talked about at the beginning, I think play well in things like ESG. And this is something we plan to talk about on uh, future uh, podcasts. So maybe you could just put in a word and it ties into the whole ESG thing. And that's with regards to electrification of automobiles and things. And there's a lot of debate about obviously a big impact. Many people would like to see the world electrified today. Clearly, that's not possible. The power grid can't handle it. And a lot of the power in the U.S. anyway is still is still coal power. So how do you see that transition playing out and how will that affect we're in Calgary, so a lot of people are investing in oil and gas up here. And what's the outlook? How does that transition take place in your mind? Yeah, I just think as with anything of that size, an energy policy is always the easiest one to point to. It just takes so long to do it on mass scale that's economically viable. I mean, everybody in the world wants to, to breathe clean air. I mean, I don't think there's a debate about that, but it's just hard to flip that switch over. And as you see in parts of the world that really have made that move, you get something that happens and then the costs go up and people protest. So it's like, all right, when, so you got to include the money aspect of it on top of everything else. So, I mean, I innovation and technology is an answer and the technology just has to catch up. Now, there's a lot of smart people in the world that are working on it and it'll get there, but you can't just flip the switch overnight. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, many of us have political systems where people get elected every two, four, six years, and it's hard to implement policy and say, well, 20, 20 years from now, somebody else is going to get the credit down the road. So it's always an intersection between politics and economics, but we'll get there. And and obviously, people always talk about, well, what about the industries that are left out? You know, we have to retrain people, but you have to be moving forward and just think about all the jobs and industries that didn't even exist over time. ATMs were going to wipe out the banking industry. Remember that? You can go back to many inventions and say, oh, my gosh this thing is, is going to be terrible. And yet you look at it and go, oh, it turned out to be great. It's why I never really look at long-term doomsday things because you always look at today's world and today's how it is. You have no idea what technologies are coming to make the world 
moving forward in that. And nobody can know that as they make estimates moving forward. So yeah, we'll get there, but it takes a long time to switch the energy source that the world has been using on an economical and a viable basis that that people can afford. But we'll all get there. That's what we do, create, destroy, and innovate and uh, move forward. So, uh, But a little patience along the way might suit not only individuals, but politicians as well. Yeah. Well, you definitely didn't want to be the last person to buy a blockbuster franchise before that went down. So uh, yeah, innovation happens whether you like it or not. I know you've got to get to another meeting, Mark, but we do have a little short speed round for you, if you don't mind. You've done all the heavy lifting already, so we appreciate that. Greg, do you want to kick us sure. off? Sure. Okay. This is an easy one. What do you do for fun when you're not working? I'm a huge baseball fan. And so uh, I go baseball and my kids are all in their 20s. We just had a wedding. So spend a lot of time with the kids, live in the Northwest, obviously. So spend a lot of time on water in the summers. Unfortunately or fortunately, go to a lot of Mariner games. (laughs) Right on. Colin? Do you binge anything other than maybe baseball games? Any TV shows or series that you watch? Yeah, I think I just kind of bounce around. I mean, I'm a big Britbox guy. I just like British mysteries. I think they're really fascinating. A lot of detective shows that go the three to four seasons. I'm usually not watching them in real time. I'm watching them after I'm the last person to watch it and I should watch it. And then I watch them all. But love detective shows, love mysteries, anything related to that. Sometimes it gets a little bit too intense for me, which is why the simplicity of BritBox and just the British way of presenting mysteries without all the gore, but all the kind of the fun part that comes with it. So that's kind of my thing. In that regard, my wife and I finished Silent Witness recently, 26 seasons. Oh my gosh. So, so I just got through Endeavor. So <laughs> That's a lot of seasons. That's a lot of seasons. We got one final question for you. It's just a Canadian specific question. Greg, it's the one you like to ask. Okay, this is a tough one. So if you don't get it, don't feel bad. Many Americans don't. Colin and I both hail from the province of Saskatchewan. Colin from Saskatoon, myself from Regina. So your question is, how do you spell Saskatchewan? <laughs> Can I just do S-A-S and leave it at that? Or <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's probably, it's probably it's, the same. Because, uh, you know, one, you know, probably ends in a W-A-N, you know, and there's some, there's some letters that are involved there in the middle. So there you go. You nailed it. You yeah. nailed it. <laughs> uh, I do have to jump off. I just got pinged for my next call. So uh, it was this fun, guys. This is, uh, I really had a good time. I hope your listeners enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for your time, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kreminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.